Dr. Guy. And this is Dr. John. Two brothers from other mothers. Welcome to Diseases, Death, and Doctors. If it's your first time, we'd like to welcome you to The Pod, a storytelling podcast that discusses the non-chronological history of medicine because it is easier that way. Today, friends and fromites, we are going to tackle everyone's favorite excuse to overconsume gin and tonics. Malaria. <laughs> I do love a little quinine. <laughs> I think gin and tonic is a pretty overrated drink. I'm just going to go ahead and start with that. Whoa. I fucking love me a G&T. Are you kidding me? I mean, I feel like they get you from A to B, but there's not a lot of enjoyment. I mean, it's just, it's like some carbonated, carbonated vodka or it's gin. It's like a, no. Okay. Well, comparing gin and vodka completely different spirits come on now um but uh i mean it's like a it's like a delicious refreshing um little bit of a nip i mean it's kind of like i mean is it is it similar is to it bourbon? a white no, claw it's not it's not, it, it's, not yes. whole, it's not different from a white claw in a lot of ways in, in some ways they're very similar but it's delicious also white claws are delicious um uh side note high noons redheaded stepchild <laughs> the the term that we were discussing beforehand that I couldn't remember is tumescent. Tumescent. Why don't you tell our listeners what that means? Because you've already blown my linguistic ability right out of the water. I mean, given your given your medical background, I would expect you to know the the terminology <laughs> for this: uh, swollen or becoming swollen, especially as a response to sexual arousal. Tumescent. And that's how we're starting this episode about. You, you were wondering how we could link sexual arousal to malaria, and Dr. John has just found a way. <laughs> I'm just Science saying, this is what we talk about before the microphones are recording. Tumescent. <laughs> That's your $5 word for today. All right. Well, that was good. Um, strong start. Um, you want me to just roll into this, or do you have any thoughts about malaria? Have you ever had it? I should ask that question. Um, I've taken, what's the prophylactic one that you take? I don't know. It gives you weird dreams. I had some weird ass dreams when I was in Central America taking that prophylactic medication. Um, I ate that stuff like Skittles when I was in Rwanda and then in Costa Rica. Surprisingly, you don't need it in Jamaica. I was there for three months, but didn't take anything. (laughs) Except photos and good memories. (laughs) A little bit of sand in the bottom of your backpack. <laughs> or some flippity flops and tank tops. <laughs> and my wife won't let me wear tank tops anymore. I'm too old, she says. Um, uh, so when I met my wife, we met on a, a online dating platform. And Were you wearing a tank top? I was wearing tank tops in four out of seven of my photos. And then when we got together, she was like, now that we're dating, you got to cut the tank tops out. And I'm like, I mean, you chose a man wearing a lot of tank tops. And how many of those pictures were you kissing one of your biceps? One and a half. All right. Fair. (laughs) We appreciate your honesty. Uh, well, I do we've wear digressed. sleeveless scrubs though. Now I think that's appropriate in the OR. <laughs> like Todd and uh, scrubs. <laughs> <laughs> that fits you. Ingest. <laughs> All right. The World Health Organization estimates that in 2019 there were 229 million 
new cases of malaria, resulting in 409,000 deaths. Jesus. Not Bummer. significant for 2019. That's two years ago? 409,000? How many people has COVID killed? I mean, I know it's more than that, but that's a fuck ton. More than that now, but in 2019, <laughs> malaria <laughs> killed more people. <laughs> And 18 and 17 and 16 and 15. <laughs> COVID's hogging all the good press. God. I know. Um, so both the global incidence of disease and resulting mortality have declined in recent years. And according to the WHO and UNICEF, deaths attributable to malaria in 2015 actually were reduced by approximately 60% uh, from that of 2000. Um which was an estimate of 985,000, so almost a million. So we're doing better. That's a good thing. Um, (laughs) The favorable decline is largely due to widespread propaganda encouraging the use of insecticide, treated mosquito nets, prophylaxis, pharmacologic interventions reliant on uh, uh, interventions reliant on artemisinin-based combination therapies. Malaria was both epidemic and endemic in the United States until the early 20th century. It struck presidents from Washington to Lincoln, weakened Civil War soldiers by the hundreds of thousands, and traveled to California with the gold rush claiming Native American lives across the continent. And until the Tennessee Valley Authority brought hydroelectric power and modernization to the rural South in the 1930s, malaria drained the physical and economic health of the entire region. I was not responsible for writing that, by the way. Someone smarter than myself (laughs) put that whole soliloquy together. Um, But speaking of the Civil War, what a shitty conflict that was. Uh, I mean, there's no cars, so you marched really everywhere. Um, The military tactics tactics were less than favorable for the infantryman at the time, and there were a shit ton of diseases and amputations. Yeah. And, and no medicine, no, 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 no real doctors. Um, it, I've it got was a, a bone saw. <laughs> You've got a problem. I've got a bone saw. <laughs> Let's just say that Malaria, was a bad time. Bone for... saw. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that was a that was a bad time for for lots of people. Not a great time. I don't know if many people were having a an awesome time in 1860. <laughs> I mean, some people were. <laughs> I mean, there might have been one guy that like, I don't know, it's like a coming of age story in New England and he's 14 and he like, you know, kisses the love of his life for the first time. Maybe he had a good 1962. I'm, or sorry, 1862. Yeah, I like, oh. yeah. I, I'm willing to bet most people had a bad 1862. When was the Civil War? Oh, yeah, it was uh, 61 to 65. That's what it was. That's right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, while malaria has been deemed no longer endemic in the United States since 1951, approximately 1,500 to 2,000 cases are still reported annually, not eradicated, but no longer endemic. So malaria is presently endemic in a broad band around the equator in areas of the Americas, uh, many parts of Asia, and much of Africa. Of note, 85 to 90% of malaria fatalities occur in sub-Saharan Africa. An estimate for 2009 reported that countries with the highest death rate per 100,000 of population were the Ivory Coast with 86 per 100,000, Angola with 56 per 100,000, and Burkina Faso with 50 per 100,000. And I have no idea where Burkina Faso is. Hashtag I'm, sure, I'm sure our listeners are very shocked by that. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we're going to go ahead and get back to our podcast and not making fun of Dr. Guy. Uh, malaria is prevalent in tropical and subtropical regions because of rainfall consistent to high temperatures and high humidity, along with stagnant waters where mosquito larvae readily mature, providing them with the environment they need for continuous breeding. Um, as of 2010, about 100 countries have endemic malaria each year, with 125 million international travelers visiting these countries, with more than 30,000 contracting the disease, which is lots of fun for travelers and often cited as the reason for return vacations. <laughs> A lot of people filling that out on the comment cards. That's right. <laughs> I'm going back because... Uh, so then... What is malaria and how does one know if they've contracted this ancient febrile illness? Well, if you happen to be frolicking blissfully through an endemic region, let's say maybe you're a social media influencer that has traveled to Burkina Faso to obtain some new content for the gram and your lack of respect for vaccinations and anti-malarial prophylaxis is matched only by your lack of respect for the local inhabitants you'll be exploiting, you may happen across an oh-so-quaint bed and breakfast in which you remove all of the mosquito netting because they conflict with your artistic vision for your planned morning photo session, during which you plan on capturing yourself drinking coffee. But obviously you'll be using both hands rather than just one to hold your mug. What is happening? <laughs> How drunk were you when you wrote this little little limerick here? Anyway, that night, stands the protective nets. About 20 mosquitoes have their way with your exposed extremities in your face. Ugh. Oh, well. That's why, that's why you bought an updated version of Photoshop. Anyway, let's fast forward 8 to 25 days later, as this is when signs of the infection will typically begin. About 20 mosquitoes have their way with your exposed extremities. Not sexually, Dr. John. <laughs> it's a mosquito bugatti. <laughs> That's what happens. Keep your mosquito uh, nets up. Oh, my God. All right. Well, your disdain of the Instagram influencer is very apparent in this episode, as is your love for Burkina Faso. Uh, which is uh, which border borders Niger and is uh, also near uh, the Ivory Coast and uh, Nigeria Pan Panhandle of Africa, <laughs> or is that just Florida? <laughs> we referred to it as Florida <laughs> and Don't Oklahoma. Insult I guess. the continent of Africa by <laughs> comparing them to Florida. Florida. <laughs> All right. So the initial symptoms are similar to that of the flu presenting with headache, fever, shivering, and joint pain. Others may also enjoy vomiting, jaundice, hemolytic anemia, hematuria, or blood in the urine, always disconcerting, and alterations in vision secondary to retinal damage, or even convulsions. The most classical symptom of malaria are the proximal attacks or cyclical recurrences of sudden coldness with intense shivering, then subsequent fever with violent sweating occurring on repeat every two days to every three days. So basically an awful version of Groundhog Day, depending on the causative agent. Um, there are essentially six different parasites in the genus Plasmodium. 
So some options there. Uh, the most severe infections are due to the parasite Plasmodium uh, falciparum, which is associated with an every third day symptom cycle that typically begins about nine to 30 days after the initial infection and may result in cerebral malaria. Yes, cerebral as in brain in which neurologic symptoms are the norm. Um, and guess what humans? Um, falciparum also happens to be the most common species isolated in infections. Uh, this can result in abnormal posturing, failure of the eyes to turn together in the same direction, conjugate gaze palsy, uh, seizures, and coma as well. Other severe complications include splenic enlargement, enlarged liver, hypoglycemia, kidney failure, as well as spontaneous bleeding, coagulopathy, and shock. Hmm. That doesn't sound good. No. Nah. Sounds awful. Do they live? You'll get to this. Do they live in the blood cells or do they live in the liver? I forget where these. They are. propagate in the liver. Propagate in the liver, but they do something to the blood cells, right? They like, yeah, I think we'll here. We'll roll into the next. This is going to be a word like, salad coming up, but we'll we'll go. Oh away. God, I can't wait for these pronunciations. <laughs> yeah, this is like first year, uh, first or second year med school, just like. Learning all doing, about the life cycle of this, and if just you're like not doing infectious disease, this was cram dump, <laughs> <laughs> cram dump. But you remember like how important it was just to learn all of this stuff and just know the intricacies of exactly what phase was happening where for, for one the test, test was important. Yeah. yeah, and then it's like <laughs> you just like for like the amount of stuff that we've learned and forgotten is shocking. I've forgotten more than most people have learned in their lifetimes. <laughs> I feel like that's like an Osler quote or something. <laughs> that's not it should be. Oh, yes. All right. <clears throat> so the infection begins, stage one, when sporozites, um, the infective stage of the plasmodium parasite, are injected into the bloodstream by a feeding mosquito, after which the sporozites then travel via your circulatory system around the body until they invade the liver hepatocytes or liver cells. There, they undergo a phase of asexual multiplication known as exoerythrocytic schizogony. Nailed it. Yeah. Um, anyway, resulting in the production of many <laughs> unit nucleate. I'm shaking my head here. <laughs> Merozoites. These merozoites flood out into the blood, invading red blood cells. There you go. Where stage three, they initiate a second phase of asexual multiplication. Um, Urethrocytic, again, schizogony, resulting in the production of about eight to 16 merozoites, which invade new red blood cells. This process is repeated almost indefinitely and is responsible for the disease malaria. As the infection progresses, some of the young merozoites develop into male and female gametocytes that circulate in the peripheral blood until they are, stage four, taken up by a female anophelin mosquito when it feeds. This is complicated. <laughs> Man, science. Uh, within the mosquito. <laughs> uh, here's step five. The gametocytes mature into male and female gametes. Fertilization occurs and a motile zygote, um, an ukinet, is formed within the lumen of the mosquito gut, the beginning of a process known as sporogeny. The ukinet uh, penetrates the gut wall and becomes conspicuous 
or becomes a conspicuous oocyte within which another phase of multiplication occurs, resulting in the formation of sporozoites. Hey, we made it back to our stage one life cycle friends uh, that then migrate to the salivary glands of a mosquito and are injected when the mosquito feeds on a new host. <sighs> so for all those uh, biology PhDs, I don't care if I mispronounce this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure they've got better things to do with their times than listen to our rambling. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Um, with consideration of all the life cycle that we just explained, you should also know that symptoms of malaria can recur after varying symptom-free periods. And depending on the cause, recurrence can be classified as either recrudescence, relapse, or reinfection. Uh, recrudescence is when symptoms return after a symptom-free period. It is caused by parasites surviving in the blood as a result of inadequate or ineffective treatment. Relapse, on the other hand, is when symptoms reappear after the parasites have been eliminated from the blood but persist as dormant hypnozoites in the liver cells. So now that we've covered the what it be, let's examine the history of one of the oldest diseases we know. I see you did find some more bourbon. Good. Bourbon drink. <laughs> uh, side note, have you been watching uh, Get Back, the Beatles documentary? No, but my wife is a huge Beatles fan, so it's on the it's on the to do list. It's so fucking good. I finished it yesterday. Anyways, it was so good. Um, highly recommended it. And when you said "what it be," it made me think of "let it be, let it be." Um, but yeah, they have a really, really good time, and it's really fun to watch them goofing off. So, what's your favorite Beatles song? It's tough. Um, I'm Al Rigsby. Oh, get out of here. Um, album is Abbey Road followed by the White Album followed by Rubber Soul. Song. Um, Get Back in the USR is so good. Dear Prudence is so good. Rocky Raccoon is so good. Those are all White Album, obviously. Um, well, let's rock we roll can roll. edit all of that out. Or leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> I digress. <laughs> that was a deep digression. <laughs> It's <laughs> like a solid five minutes. <laughs> um, so malaria is an ancient disease, Dr. John. And the first reference of malaria um, actually occurs in a Chinese document from about 2700 BC. It's referenced in clay tablets from Mesopotamia uh, from 2000 BC, as well as in Egyptian papyri from 1570 BC and Hindu texts as far back as the 6th century BC. So such historical records must be regarded with caution, though. It's a little hard to definitively confirm these things back then. But um, as we move into later centuries, historians stand on slightly firmer ground, uh, a little more confident regarding their assertions regarding the documentation of disease um, that we know as malaria. So the early Greeks, including Homer in about 850 B.C., and Hippocrates in about 400 BC were well aware of characteristic poor health, malarial fevers, and enlarged spleen seen in people living in marshy places. Uh, the prominent Roman agricultural writer Lucius uh, Junitus Moderatus uh, Columella also associated the disease with swamps. So some historians suggest that malaria may have been one of several factors that contributed to the decline of the Roman Empire. Um, and that's based on the fact that malaria was so pervasive in Rome, it was actually known as Roman fever. 
Um, several regions in ancient Rome were considered at risk for the disease because of the favorable conditions present for malarial vectors. This included areas such as southern Italy, the island of Sardinia, uh, the Pontine Marshes. By the way, have you ever had Puntine? Thoughts? Fan? Yes? No? What? Have you-, <laughs> you, mean the, you mean the Canadian fries and gravy thing? Yes! Bacon yeah. on them. It's quite good. I, I think kind it's delicious. spelled differently than whatever the hell you were just saying. No, the Pontine Marshes. <laughs> so back to malaria. The lower regions of coastal Etruria and the city of Rome along the Tiber. Tiber? Tiber, yeah. Tiber. The presence of stagnant water in these places was preferred by mosquitoes for breeding grounds. Irrigated gardens, swamp-like grounds, runoff from agricultural and drainage problems from road construction led to an increase in standing water. So... For over 2,500 years, the idea that malaria fevers were caused by miasmas rising from the swamps persisted, and it was widely held that the word malaria comes from the Italian malaria, meaning spoiled or bad air. And for a period of time, the disease was dubbed agua, or marsh fever, due to its predominance in swamp regions. With the discovery of bacteria by Antoine van Leeuwenhoek, in 1676, and the incrimination or incrimination of microorganisms as causes of infectious diseases, and the development of the germ theory of infection by Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch in 1878 and 1879, the search for the cause of malaria intensified. I don't think of malaria as in the Mediterranean or Italy anymore. Is it there still? I mean, it's close-ish to the equator, but I would assume because it is Italy and it's not a third world country that they probably have, you would have to check to see if it's endemic. My guess would be no at this point, but I can either confirm or I've not, I've not researched that or looked into it on my own. I will keep going. You fill us in. (laughs) Scientific studies on malaria made their first significant advance in 1880 when Charles Louis Alphonse Le Veron, a French army doctor working in the military hospital of Constantine in Algeria, observed the plasmodium parasites inside the red blood cells of infected people for the first time. It was hence good old Charles who proposed that malaria is caused by this organism, marking the first time a protist was identified as causing a disease. It's a special moment in history. Uh, For this and later discoveries, he was awarded with the 1907 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine. Way to go, Charles. We had disease, death, and doctors salute you. This is kind of a trend. (laughs) If you do something special with malaria, you apparently get a little medal around your neck. Mr. (laughs) Noble gives you a prize. Um, Uh, That dynamite peddler. So uh, now we have isolated the parasite or cause of the infection, but what is the vector? How do humans acquire it? That was the next question. Well, a year later, Carlos Finlay, a Cuban doctor treating people with yellow fever in Havana, provided strong evidence that mosquitoes were transmitting the disease to and from humans. This work followed earlier suggestions by Josiah C. Nott and work by Sir Patrick Manson, a.k.a. the father of tropical medicine. Daddy. <laughs> On the transmission of filariasis, filariasis, which is another parasitic disease spread by blood-feeding insects, the black fly and the mosquito, or the skater, as they call them here in the <laughs> South. In April 1894, a Scottish-British physician, 
Sir Ronald Ross, known today as Rick Ross, <laughs> <laughs> who was working in India as a member of the British military as an army surgeon, discovered that Colossine mosquitoes transmitted the avian malaria parasite Plasmodium relictum, and hence suggested the human malaria parasites might also be transmitted by mosquitoes. Sir Ronald then began to correspond with the aforementioned Sir Patrick Manson, who worked and studied malaria patients in London. This is the Philariasis dude noted about 30 seconds ago. Um, Sir Ronald ultimately visited Sir Patrick Manson at his house on Queen Anne Street, London. It's quite a meeting. Um, a Mensa meeting proceeded. And this visit was the start of four years of collaboration, feverent research that culminated in 1897 when Ross, who was working in the Presidency General Hospital in Calcutta, proved the complete life cycle of the malaria parasite in mosquitoes, thus proving that the mosquito was indeed the vector for malaria in humans. He was able to do this using his earlier knowledge of his avian studies, leading him to isolate malaria parasites from the salivary glands of mosquitoes that had fed on infected birds. Now, around the same time as Ross's breakthrough in 1896, Amico Bignami also studied and began to disseminate his hypothesized role of mosquitoes in malaria. Then in 1898, Bignami, uh, Giovanni Battista Grassi, and Giuseppe Bastinelli succeeded in demonstrating experimentally the transmission of malaria in humans. How did they do this, you ask? Well, good question. Like any good 19th century scientist, they infected themselves with malaria using mosquitoes known to be infected with malaria. They then presented their research and findings in November of 1898 to the Academia de Lunci. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> OG <laughs> as far as it gets in the scientific world. Uh, Self-infection to prove you're correct. Um, that takes some big marbles. Um, so for his work, Ross received the 1902 Nobel Prize in Medicine. No Nobel Prize for Bignami, though. Um, Ross would have a successful career, and after resigning from the Indian Medical Service, Ross went on to work at the newly established Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and directed malaria control efforts in Egypt, Panama, Greece, and Mauritius. The findings of Ross were later confirmed by a medical board headed by Walter Reed in the 1900s, or in 1900. Uh, Sir Ronald Ross's discovery that malaria was transmitted by mosquitoes had tremendous impact on the development of programs in the tropics. One of the first of these was the construction of the Panama, Panama Canal, which began within a few years of Dr. Ross's breakthrough. The Isthmus of Panama was an ideal environment for mosquitoes. The high temperature varies little during the year and the rainy season lasts for nine months. On top of that, the interior of the isthmus is tropical jungle, ideal for mosquito breeding. Uh, the Panama Canal extends diagonally across the isthmus of Panama uh, from southeast to northwest, a distance of 42 miles from shore to shore. And at the time in Panama, approximately 80,000 people were living within villages within about a half a mile of the planned construction zone of the canal. During the American occupation of Havana, Cuba, regulations were put into effect by the United States Army under the direction of Surgeon Major W.C. Gorgas for the control of yellow fever that consisted of screening of houses 
and extensive drainage to reduce breeding of mosquitoes. Not only was yellow fever eliminated, but malaria transmission was also greatly reduced, hence Gorgas was again assigned a directorship role in establishing the health measures undertaken during construction of the Panama Canal. Now, Gorgas' program consisted of draining pools of stagnant water, bush, and grass cutting, maintaining a height of less than one foot within 100 yards of any individual home or village. Oiling was performed when pools of water could not be drained. The oil was added to kill mosquito larvae. So basically, an optimist could argue that the Exxon Valdez tragedy was actually a public health measure. No? (laughs) Is that a reach? (laughs) That's a bit of a reach. Uh, I wondered why the Exxon PR people never threw that one out there. (laughs) Let's see. So prophylactic quinine was provided freely to all workers. More on quinine in a bit. Um, All government buildings and offices were screened against mosquitoes. And lastly, mosquito collecting was also performed. The death rate due to malaria in employees dropped from 11.59 per 1,000 in November of 1906 to 1.23 per 1,000 in December of 1909. That's impressive. It reduced the deaths from malaria and the total population from a maximum 16.21 per 1,000 in July of 1906 to 2.58 per 1,000 in December of 1909. Um, So this public health work saved the lives of thousands of workers and helped develop the methods used in future public health campaigns against the disease. Although malaria was not eliminated under these most trying conditions, the disease was controlled to the extent that construction work could be completed. And that's all they cared about. Uh, That's right. <laughs> uh, so Italy has been uh, was declared malaria free in 1970. Uh, that's a little right. bit of a callback to our prior discussion. It took you a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, 1970. Uh, no more malaria in Italy, um, and that was part to a huge public health uh, campaign where they uh, uh, basically killed deep baby. they did a lot of uh, a lot of that and um, a lot of prophylactic quinine Um, so yeah well so uh, I think at this point we're going to talk a little bit about some uh, malarial treatments of your so uh, medieval remedies to cure malaria back when it was known as malaria remember bad air in Italian uh, reflected on the erroneous belief that it was an airborne disease in rain from bloodletting, always a favorite of the times, to limb amputations or to cutting a hole in the skull. Uh, old trepanation. We haven't mentioned that one for a while. Yeah, that's my fave. Baby steps, right? Back then, that was what you're, that's, that's what you held in your, those are the cards you held in your deck, in your hand. You either amputated something, drill a hole in the head, or let out some blood, which both of the other two options would probably do, so. <laughs> need that like a hole in the head synergy um, in 17th century or in the 17th century the first known cure for it was found deep in the South American Andes according to legend quinine was discovered as a malarial cure in 1631 when the Countess of Sinchona a Spanish noblewoman married to the Viceroy of Peru fell ill with a high fever and severe chills the classic symptoms of malaria, as we previously described. 
Desperate to heal her, the viceroy gave his wife a concoction prepared by Jesuit priests made with the bark of an Andean tree and mixed with clove and rose leaf syrups and other dried plants. The countess soon recovered, and the miraculous plant that cured her was named after her, Cinchona. You actually knew more about this than I did going into this episode, I believe. Well, I just uh, read uh, the, uh, the Asian Saga by James Clavell. Um, I think it's Taipan. They talk about Sinchoa and the Jesuits having kind of a cornered market on it from the their presence in South America. But uh, super interesting, like that connection and then the way that it spread to kind of the rest of the world and stuff like that. It's absolutely oh, fascinating definitely. how they figured that one out. So in truth, the medicinal bark quinine was already known by the Quechua, the Canary of the Chamu indigenous peoples that inhabited modern-day Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador before the arrival of the Spanish. Uh, they would crush the cinnamon-colored bark into a thick, bitter powder that could be easily digested. And they were the ones who ultimately introduced the bark to the Spanish Jesuits. The concoction became known as Jesuits powder. Um, and soon people across Europe began writing about a miraculous malaria remedy discovered in the jungles of the New World. And by 1640s, the Jesuits had established trade routes to transport cinchona bark through Europe um, and apparently also to the Far East. It was not until 1820 that the active ingredient quinine was extracted from the bark isolated and named by the French chemist Pierre-Joseph Pelletier and Joseph Benjamin uh, Caventeau. The cinchona trees value soared during the 19th century when malaria was one of the greatest threats faced by European troops deployed in overseas colonies and historians believe that obtaining adequate supplies of quinine became a huge strategic advantage in the race for global domination. The cinchona bark turned into one of the world's hottest commodities. Europeans hired locals to find the precious fever tree in the rainforest, scrape its bark with a machete, and take it to cargo ships awaiting in Peruvian ports. Cinchona was used by the Dutch in Indonesia, by the French in Algiers, and probably most famously by the British in India, uh, as well as Jamaica and across Southeast Asia and West Africa. By the 1840s, British citizens and soldiers in India were using 700 tons of cinchona bark annually for their protective doses of quinine. And between 1848 and 1861, the British government spent the equivalent of 6.4 million pounds each year importing cinchona bark to store for its colonial troops. And as a result, quinine is frequently cited by historians as one of the major tools of imperialism that powered the British Empire. Uh, quinine powder kept the troops alive. It allowed officials to survive in low-lying and wet regions in India and ultimately permitted a stable British population to prosper in its tropical colonies. Quinine was so bitter, though, that the British officials stationed in India and other tropical posts took to mixing the powder with soda and sugar. Tonic water, my friends, of sort was then born. Uh, the original tonic water was basically a home brew, um, however, until an enterprising Brit named Erasmus Bond introduced the first commercial tonic water in 1858. Bond's new tonic was soon followed by Schweppes. Introduction in 1870, 
of Indian quinine tonic. Gotta love capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In my personal opinion, the best part of the British quinine craze is the vehicle the British chose to ensure that their soldiers were compliant with their daily prophylaxis. And in 1825, British officers began to mix gin with their daily ration of quinine tonic because, eh, why not? A spoonful of sugar does help the medicine go down, Mary Poppins. Um, In this case, a couple jiggers of gin help the medicine go down. So Winston Churchill once declared, the gin and tonic has saved more Englishmen's lives and minds than all the doctors in the empire. Uh, Yeah, up to that He's not wrong. not wrong. (laughs) Especially in the 1800s. I'm not saying the doctors were that good. Churchill, what? 1940s, they really only had medicine for, you know, 30, 40 years then. <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'll give a gin and tonic had a pretty good head start there. Well, now, so this is uh, for you curious kittens out there who are wondering, and I definitely was, uh, today's tonic water um, is a lot less potent than the Indian original, um, containing only about 15 milligrams per liter of quinine which is nowhere near enough to offer an anti-malarial effect. Um, It's been calculated by our friends at the travel doctor um, that one would need to consume 67 liters of modern tonic water to get approximately one gram of quinine and one to two grams is what's needed for prophylaxis. So that's what, uh, that's what us medical Professionals call it a butt ton of tonic water. <laughs> they, they just don't make it like they used to. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. Grandpa's cough medicine was a little stronger than <laughs> than no. mine. Uh, so this is a good time to reiterate that malaria wasn't just a disease of the tropics or what we consider traditional colonialism. Malaria was a significant problem in the United States prior to its eradication in 1951. We beat you, Italy. Um, and in fact, malaria and quinine played a significant role in the course of the Civil War. <laughs> For the first two years of the war, the Confederacy hoped that yellow fever and malaria would save cities like New Orleans from Union forces. Uh, when the South was on the verge of defeat, the Confederates hoped that the Union's operations further south would be significantly scaled back during sickly season. It's the sickly season here in the <laughs> South. <laughs> These are the months during which yellow fever and malaria were at their peak. Some Southern whites developed an acquired resistance to malaria um, from surviving repeated malarial attacks. And African slaves in the South often had genetic traits that provided protection against the disease. However, it was thought that the Yankees did not have any protection against this disease. Uh, What wasn't considered initially was the fact that not only did the Union have the upper hand when it came to weapons, manpower, and food, it was also rich and another valuable resource, quinine. So a strategic naval blockade by the North choked the supply of malaria medication to the Confederacy. Um, The Confederate soldiers were less resistant to the disease than they had hoped, and hence, while Union soldiers took daily preventative doses, malaria festered within the Confederate armies. Smugglers attempted to sneak quinine past the blockade, stuffed in children's dolls or in the skirts of women disguised as nuns. I mean, that's going the extra mile, but it barely made a dent in the number of soldiers falling to the disease, which was said to bleed dry the fighting strength and spirit of the Confederacy. That's super interesting. I did not know. I I had no idea. But that played such a role. Also, just for anybody that's curious, 
people were so fucking sick all the time back in the day. <laughs> like, just the amount of just sickness and disease that was present in every day. Like, I know we have, like... Malaria, yellow fever, stuff, tuberculosis. Yeah. yeah. People's heads were popping off. Yeah, like, just the sickly season, just when everybody was dying left and right. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> super interesting. I had no idea that it played such a role in the... Uh, so yeah, so quinine was the predominant malarial medication until the 1920s when other medications began to appear. In the 1940s, chloroquine uh, replaced quinine as the treatment of both uncomplicated and severe malaria until resistance supervened in Southeast Asia and South America in the 1950s and then globally in the eight, 1980s, leading to the use of artemisinin in the primary treatment option for as the primary treatment option for malaria. Uh, the medicinal value of artemisia annu was appreciated by the Chinese herbalists in traditional Chinese medicines for 2000 plus years. And in the 1970s, Chinese scientists Tu Yuyu and colleagues influenced by traditional Chinese herbal medicines, isolated artemisin from the plant artemisia annu which became the recommended treatment for falciparum malaria. For her work on malaria, to received the 2015 Nobel Prize in Physiology oh. or Medicine. Told you. That's all you got to do. Do something to fix malaria. Nobel Prize. You get a Nobel Prize. You get a Nobel Prize. You get a Nobel Prize. Just that, that real low-hanging fruit. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up with a cure for a horrible disease. <laughs> A sidebar problem associated with the effective management of malaria in many endemic regions has been the rise in sophisticated artemisinin counterfeits that have been found in several Asian countries, such as Cambodia, China, Indonesia, Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam. They are major causes of avoidable death in those countries. The World Health Organization said that studies indicate that up to 40% of artesunate-based malarial medications are counterfeit. That's insane, um, especially in the greater Mekong region. Out of necessity, the WHO has established a rapid alert system to rapidly report information about counterfeit drugs to relevant authorities in participating countries. There is no reliable way for doctors or lay people to detect counterfeit drugs without help from a laboratory. So companies are attempting to combat the persistence of counterfeit drugs by using new technology to provide security uh, from source to distribution. A 2012 study identified another clinical and public health concern, which is the proliferation of substandard antimalarial medicines resulting from inappropriate concentration of ingredients, contamination with toxic impurities, as well as poor compound stability or inadequate packaging. The study found that roughly one-third of antimalarial medications in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa failed chemical analysis, packaging analysis, or were falsified. People still suck, don't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we, uh, we, we didn't cure people sucking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we'll give it another hundred years. Uh, malarial prevention, however, was always um, and has always been paramount to effectively controlling malaria in endemic regions. It's much cheaper to prevent than it is to manage and treat after the fact. Uh, the first pesticide used for indoor residual spraying was dichlorodiphenyltrichloroethane, DDT, baby. And DDT was initially used exclusively to combat malaria, but its use quickly spread to agriculture as well. Um, in time, pest control rather than disease control became the, or came to dominate DDT 
use, and this large-scale agricultural use led to the evolution of pesticide-resistant mosquitoes in many regions, which also could probably connect this dot to the use of antibiotics and livestock, how that could potentially impact us going forward. Mm. It's a a conversation for another day. Uh, But during the 1960s, awareness of the negative consequences of its indiscriminate use increased and ultimately led to bans on agricultural applications of DDT in many countries in the 1970s. To date, malaria vaccines have largely been an elusive goal of research. Uh, The first vaccine called RTS comma S was approved by European regulators in 2015 and as of 2019 is still undergoing pilot trials in three sub-Saharan African countries, Ghana, Kenya, and Malawi. As part of the World Health Organization's malaria vaccine implementation program, uh, this first-generation malarial vaccine thus far has demonstrated modest efficacy against malaria illness and holds promise as a public health tool, especially for children in high transmission areas where mortality is high. So my big takeaways, gin and tonics will not only get you drunk, but if you drink 67 liters of them, you might be protected against the malaria. Uh, Malaria has been around basically forever and is still a big problem today, not so much in the U.S. or Italy. Um, And if you successfully conduct any groundbreaking research on malaria, you will win the Nobel Prize. Hashtag fact. (laughs) The end. That's malaria in a nutshell. That's a, or a podcast. That's awesome. A nut podcast. Um, so artesanate, um, I was not familiar with this medication. You kept on saying it and its derivatives um, for kind of current treatment. Um, it was only approved for medical use in the U.S. in May of 2020. Well, well, well. I don't think we now you can start to give all your malaria patients our test mate. Yeah, that's super freaking interesting. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and it's a derivative of uh, of a sweet wormwood plant um, from China, as you alluded to. I love I love some good wormwood. That's uh, all right. Smells of wormwood and mahogany. I definitely learned a few things during this episode. Thanks for all the the words. Since it ran salad. This is the longest episode we've recorded in a long time. I'm going to have to edit the crap out of it. (laughs) Uh, Make it sound so smart. Uh, I'd like to change my answers to prior questions um, that you asked me, namely about uh, favorite Beatles songs. Um, So Don't Let Me Down, fantastic one. I would also like to put uh, Happiness is a Warm Gun on the list. Uh, Rocky Raccoon, obviously. And um, one more. A day in the life. Thank you. I can't even remember how we connected malaria to the Beatles in the first place. Mm, I don't know. It was something about let it be. <laughs> the get back. There you go. I, I was about to say, I suppose when I edit this, I'll, I'll answer my own question. But yeah. Well, with that said, friends and listeners, thank you for tuning in for yet another episode of Disease, Death, and Doctors. I hope you've been proficiently entertained. Are you not entertained? Yeah. Subscribe. And uh, rate us with lots of stars. We <laughs> like the gold friend. stars. <laughs> the gold stars, yeah. Find the special <laughs> gold stars to give them to us. Tell your and friends. Keep, we'll see you in another two weeks. And in the meantime, you know, stay safe. Try to avoid the, the COVID. Maybe get a vaccination if you're uh, still being a little dodgy on that front. And uh, we'll see you soon. Cheers. Yeah, get vaccinated. Oh, uh, good tonic. Uh, Jack Rudy uh, tonic. Go make a gin and tonic. Or drink bourbon.
It's more flavor. <laughs> For a more sophisticated palate. Or you could have a tonic and white cloth. Like <laughs> <laughs> Toodles! <laughs> <laughs>